This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off, not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 298 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Now, I got to see Sally talk at the Florian Symposium in San Antonio last year, and what really struck me was she had a very powerful personal story regarding mental health and suicide, and then the educational element of it and what she's done with her work. So, an incredible conversation. We talk about a host of areas from mental health in construction, obviously in our professions, And the Man Therapy Program, which everyone needs to look up after you're done listening to this. It is incredible. Now, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then take whichever outlets you have and share the show. There are now almost 300 episodes on here. That's 300 opportunities to either hear an incredibly powerful life story or someone's body of work. And it is a free library. So all I ask is that you, the audience, help share these incredible men and women's stories and get them to the ear holes of everyone on planet Earth that needs to hear it. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Enjoy. Sally, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. 
Yeah, I'm so grateful to be here. This is a really important conversation. Thanks for uh, lifting up the stories. Absolutely. Well, I was very, very fortunate to be at the Florian Rosecrans Symposium last year, and I got to hear you talk. Um, and when I was sitting there, Dana Ali had, uh, had introduced us, and I was blown away by not only you know your your clinical side, but and your statistics and observations, but obviously your own very strong personal story as well. So I would love to start. Well, firstly, the, my very first question: Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> yeah, I'm calling actually from my parents' house. They live in Westminster, Colorado, about an hour from my home in Conifer, Colorado. Brilliant. All right. So then that's kind of a good segue, I guess. So where were you born? I was born and raised in Connecticut, but I always say I was really not a New Englander in my soul and uh, found my way out to Colorado um, by graduate school. And once I got out here, I was like, oh, I'm a Westerner. I was just born in the wrong place. And so I've set a lot of roots down here and I love it. Yeah, it is a beautiful part of the States. Mm. So back to your parents, though. So what did your parents do and how many siblings did you have? Um, my parents are retired. My dad is a former uh, insurance executive from Connecticut because that's the insurance capital of the world. And my mom is a retired um, computer programmer um, that helped create software that protected people who worked in nuclear power plants. So very interesting stuff. Um, I only had one sibling and um, my brother Carson died by suicide in 2004. And he's the reason I do what I do. Absolutely. Okay. So then... Um as you were growing up, what were your personal career aspirations in high school? Uh, I had a lot of different things that I was interested in, and it really depended on the teacher that I had. I was inspired a lot by school, and I was really connected to a number of teachers who I thought, um, you know, helped me think about working in that direction. I, I think I always wanted to go to graduate school. I think that was just part of um, Part of my growing up is that uh, education achievement, educational achievement was something that was highly valued. So I knew that I would persist something there, um, but I didn't really know what. And I guess if I could find a common pattern um, throughout the whole thing, I was really much an, an impact entrepreneur. I liked to start things that um, positively impacted people. And uh, I, I really liked the creative phase of starting things up, creating new programs and writing books and you know, creating new initiatives and really being innovative and bold. Uh, but then when it gets really complicated, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the girl for that. <laughs> I'm a starter upper. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, growing up with Carson. So I had Pat Kenny on the show who who was at the, co the conference with us and mm. told his incredibly heartbreaking, powerful story. And then his little boy, you know, the, the, the mental health issues were manifesting at a very young age. Was that the, the case with Carson or was this something that came out later? So here's the thing about a lot of mental health conditions. A lot of times um, the gifts that people bring to the world uh, that are connected to their mental health condition um, are gifts. They're, they're gifts, they're strengths. And uh, so sometimes they're not seen as problems or liabilities till later. So the gifts that my brother brought to the world is that um, he also had this incredible entrepreneurial skill set. He was bold. He was visionary. He was charismatic. He was a go-getter. He was a risk taker. He was funny. He was like all of these beautiful things. And, um, and when he was healthy, you know, that was where all of his gifts lie, but it was really kind of, um, in some ways the upswing of the milder form of bipolar condition. He wasn't, um, diagnosed until later, but those were certainly patterns we saw 
uh, throughout his youth. Um, he was uh, diagnosed at 19 um, when he made some really stupid decisions. And um, that diagnosis actually waxed and waned over the course of his um, adult life. Uh, but it didn't really become hugely problematic until, you know, t- until later. Um, and he, he fought hard against it. He, um, by that, I mean, he, he tried a lot of things to help cope with the depression, um, side of bipolar condition. The, the upswing of it was not a problem. He thrived there, uh, cause it was at the lower levels, but the, the depression was pretty crushing for him. And so when he, um, was experiencing depression, he would try talk therapy, he would try medication, uh, he would try all kinds of self-help stuff, um, and he really was able to manage it for a long period of time. Right, because when Pat was uh, talking about his, his son, I'd never heard this term before, but he, he described it as a terminal depression, that mm. you know, there were multiple suicide attempts and you know, sadly, ultimately, he was successful. Was that something you saw with him as well? No, um, he was actually, uh, he actually did really, really well um, in all areas of his life until I would say the last six months or so, then things got really out of control with the mania side of bipolar condition. And he kind of went through his life like a train wreck. And so um, when that started happening, that's when we knew something was wrong. Uh, He wasn't suicidal. He was just completely out of control with a lot of um, drug and alcohol behavior. He left his family. He was just doing all kinds of extremely risky things. And he just wasn't himself. Like I remember looking into his eyes and not seeing my brother. Like, I don't know where my brother went, but you're not he. <laughs> and, um, and he was just mean and distanced himself. And it was super hard because we knew he was not making good decisions. Um, and then around Thanksgiving of 2004, um, when his accountant told him he was broke and he had no more money, he kind of did a 180 and became, and came back to the family in, in this just depleted, despondent, desperate um situation he was so depressed and um i actually just think he came back to say goodbye so uh we didn't have like a super long-term phase where we were worried about him but certainly at the end we knew he was in trouble and you know we did what we did we did what we could to support him but i think at that point um he had already really resolved to uh just to to go yeah no, I had uh, actually I, I had Kevin Hines on the show. We did a short interview, and then um, the, the we use Zoom on that one, which is why I'm so anti-Zoom now. And, and Zoom basically lost it on Kevin's side, so we never oh, so we got to redo it. But he's another example of bipolar. You know, he's he's the, for everyone listening, he's one of the men that survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. Um. So a lot of what we deal with here is you know first responders and and associated professions who start off somewhat resilient get beaten down by whatever it is childhood trauma um you know the job itself shift work and then are able to find their way back out through some of the regular therapies but bipolar disorder is one that we keep hearing and obviously schizophrenia where that's a, a different kind of animal so so what is it in the brain um that's creating those versus regular trauma yeah, I can't say that that's a main area of my expertise. Um, I do know that you know we have evidence from brain scans that show not just with bipolar condition and schizophrenia, but with also depression that the brain's just not functioning in a, in the same way that it does when it's well. But I also many many people walk around every day with these health conditions and they do amazingly well. Um, and Kevin Hines is one of those people. Um, he is well known in, in around the world as being, um, you know, 
an incredible success story of someone who fights every day for his wellness, who's really focused on his self-care. He's got an extremely challenging set of diagnoses um, that make it hard, but he is so focused and he does such a great job and he's such an inspiration to so many people. So yes, these are challenging conditions, but so are a lot of other health conditions that people walk around with. And if we're mindful of our self-care and mindful of um, managing these illnesses, there's no reason people can't have you know amazing lives and amazing careers in all kinds of areas. Yeah. But are these some of the conditions where you see that some medications actually are appropriate and do work well? Yeah, I think for some that are um, very significant and very disruptive, uh, medication can be extremely helpful. And I know, you know, Kevin attributes a lot of his success to the fact that he's mindful of his medication. And he's also had challenges with his medication. And I think that's, again, true for a lot of people in a long term chronic illness space. Uh, the medication can be both a blessing and a curse. But for many people, the medication is what helps keep them here. So they figure out ways to, to manage it. Absolutely. Okay, well, just kind of going back for a moment then. So how did you find yourself in the world of psychology? Um, again, I think it was because of the teachers that I had. I, I went to Bowdoin College, which is a liberal arts school. I went in thinking I was going to be an economics major and I because I had a great economics teacher in high school. Um, and I got to into a couple of courses around economics and I was like, nope. This is not for me, but I got into some psychology classes and I was really interested in uh, understanding human behavior, hearing people's stories. Um, I was just fascinated to understand a little bit more about what makes us tick and how people can come through difficult times. And then I just kept going. I, uh, I didn't um, get into uh, my first round of graduate school choices, uh, which was really disappointing. I was super, super upset by that. But like most um, sad things or disappointing things in life, it of course turned into a blessing later. I thought I wanted to be a child psychologist um, because I had done some volunteer work in a child uh, residential treatment center. And I just know the, the suffering of children, you know, is, is horrible. And we should um, support kids. But also if we also don't help kids, then they continue to suffer their entire lives. But when I got into the work, it was just, um, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of things, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of legal stuff, a lot of, uh, I, you didn't get to work with the kids as much as I wanted to. So that got me into a, a program in Denver that allowed me to focus on things like trauma and systems thinking and all kinds of cool stuff. So it was really just a pathway, I think, of mentors cultivating probably a, an inkling of interest that I had in and the human condition. Yeah. Well, you touched on child psychology. That's, some, that's a place I'd like to start with this this journey. So I had no idea until I started this podcast and listening to people like yourself and then, you know, people with these very powerful stories of being literally having the gun in their mouth and coming back, how many men and women in the, you know, the protector services, police, fire, EMS, military, um, had been through some horrendous abuse as children. Mm -hmm. So starting with that first, what, what is your, um, experience, you know, with all, with all the, the men and women that you've seen as far as the, the, the presence of trauma? Was, was it, was it a greater amount than you realized when you entered this profession? Um, I guess not since I had that kind of child psychology, psychology background. It wasn't surprising, but I think it was, uh, maybe underemphasized that we have great data now that show, um, you know, kids when they've had multiple forms of significant trauma, whether that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, uh, very dysfunctional, violent homes and communities, terrible transitions around foster care, like all of these things, um, 
later in life, they'll also have high rates of, uh, of likelihood to have all kinds of health issues, you know, cancer and heart disease and addiction and smoking and, and suicide. Um, but here's the good news. I mean, there is so much power in connection. There is so much power in healing when people you know, reach through and say, I see you and, and you matter. Um, we also know that if that kiddo has just one caring adult, you know, a, a teacher, a mentor, a coach, someone in their faith community, an auntie, um, somebody who, who can reach out and say, you're important and uh, I'm with you, then they're far less likely later in life to have that. Now, with the first responder community, I think that also really speaks to the resilience of the human spirit to come through a difficult childhood like that and come out the other side and say, you know what, I'm going to take all that bad stuff and I'm going to turn it into helping others in a really profound way. Um, and we also see this with the military, right? So uh, that that really does, again, speak to incredible strong spirits. Um, and so they do have some some empathy and some familiarity with with danger and and trauma. And so it's a road that they've walked before. And so they are better positioned. They are better able to walk that road again and help others. Yeah. So, the, so they're more resilient if they've dealt with the uh, the trauma by that point. Yeah, mostly. I mean, some of them just stumble into it. Uh, and deal with it on the fly. <laughs> uh, because again, because it's not something that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a familiar situation. And so they, they're drawn to it, making meaning out of their own past. Um, and then, yes, yeah, sometimes the dragon rears its ugly head later. Uh, but, um, but now we know, we know that a lot of folks are coming to this work because of their own histories, making meaning out of that. And so, you know, we can start to help them think through what that means during the academies and the onboarding into the career and and help them use that to better their service rather than to get them hung up on it later yeah now i'm going to get back to to kids again in a moment but i do have a, a thing that i've talked about a little bit and this was just an aha moment for me i've worked now for four fire departments in my career and so each time obviously you're going through a hiring process and then um you know the the hurdles you have to jump over and two of them were always either polygraph and then a psych evaluation, but it mm -hmm. wasn't a true evaluation. It was check the box. You know, you do mm -hmm. thousands of bubble questions, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot on the show and I'm sure you're familiar with them. Like, do you like flowers? Do you like sheep? Mm -hmm. Do you like the color mm -hmm. red? Do you like raping kids? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, what? Mm -hmm. um, but right. And right. my observation is this now, um, and obviously knowledge is power. Now realizing the trauma that a lot of people carry into this profession my my thought is why not when you know use background checks to see if you want that person i mean that's that's the paper trail really and then offer you know put these new recruits through x amount of counseling sessions so they have an opportunity to offload at the door and also have a connection now with a counselor anytime they have an issue through their career i love it i love it i love it love it love it i love it so much because it just normalizes look we all have stuff we all come into this world and have pathways where things happen to us um let's get you uh, oriented to your self-care and get you familiar with you know advanced support if you ever need it and let's do that on the front end um i absolutely love that idea and i think it should completely be a part of uh you know any of their any of our industries that have an increased vulnerability around this not just first responders but you know i know you, we, i work in construction i work with healthcare. uh there's a lot of industries that have heightened risk for these issues and if we just normalized that on the front end uh, both self-care and familiarity with professional supports um this is just what we do we inoculate we inoculate <laughs> um because i think the the other way that this could go 
could be incredibly damaging. And that's the witch hunt approach. We're going to give you all these screening tools because we're looking for the crazy ones. And then we're going to box you out, you know, uh, because I do think there's um, some of our most effective people have been through some pretty awful stuff uh, and they've learned from it and they've grown through it and their service is above and beyond. So I'm, I'm very wary of the witch hunt, witch hunt approach uh, to stuff. And I'm much more in favor of the self-care and empowerment and connect them to supports early on and often. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you said that. It's, it's funny, but the very first fire department I ever put an, an app in or interest app right after I, I came out of the academy was um, uh, Miami Beach. And mm -hmm. they we did I think we did like a physical and a, uh, it, it was doing the, the, the kind of testing uh, medical and physical that you do and then it goes out to all the departments and they were there and they gave out these interest apps and they asked about drug history have you ever tried and way back in the day yeah i've tried this before and have fun and did it for you know four times and that was and that was it and the guy looked at me with disdain all but basically ripped it up in front of me and said yeah we're not we're no longer accepting you mm. uh, and that was uh, and that was when i realized all right okay so i have to lie to get right. into the fire service now That's I'm right. clear. So I lied through my polygraphs. I lied through my apps. And, you know, what I did was nothing horrific other than just dance a lot in a, in a club in Japan a few times and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hug yeah. a bunch of people. And that was it. But it was, it was insane, you know. And, and so you're right. The witch hunt exists with, with, you know, um, driving records and, you know, criminal records and, and drug use and all these things, really. If you are at a place now where you, like you said, you've come out of wherever it was, you, you've overcome, your speeding tickets, whatever it is, you're looking for people that are going to run towards a gunfire, run into a burning building. You're not going to find a bunch of choir boys that have done nothing but read exactly. books their whole life. Exactly. And what you're doing in the, in the witch hunt approach is you're just creating a whole system of liars, a whole system of people who uh, get really good at covering up things that are not going well. And is that what you really want? Or do you rather have people who say, you know what, I messed up and I need to fix it and or I'm not doing well and I need to be better so help me you know you're creating a, a culture where people cover up yeah. because they're afraid of consequences which makes it go underground which makes it fester and makes it a huge more difficult problem later yeah and exactly and right at the front door you're saying addiction is unacceptable and you know all these other things mm -hmm. so when people are hurting and they're finding their way into opiates or alcohol which is the big elephant in the room then uh, you know mm -hmm. they've been told day one that's that's not going to fly so yeah. All right. Well, then, um, I want to go out just, just to touch on kids. I know it's not the focus of this, but, um, I had a couple of issues with, with my, my little boy in his school recently. And when I say his school, his own, you know, things going on as well that, 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 um, triggered this, but the response was zero to a million by the school mm -hmm. and then also a local law enforcement agency recently. Both times now he ended up in, um, forced hospitalization. Both of which were completely blown out of proportion, um, and should have been de-escalated. So that, that my little kind of, you know, segue aside, what has been your observation of just overall mental health in, in, in our children's schools in this kind of decade that we're in? Well, it, you know, interestingly enough, before you started recording, we were talking about the coronavirus and I, it's just kind of the same thing. We, uh, right now we just seem to be wired for panic. And when, when human beings are panicking, man, do we make a whole bunch of really stupid decisions. Like we just go into this fierce, fierce fear and self-protection mode. Um, so that zero to a million response 
is so contraindicated if you look at the data, you know, because what people often need is the least restrictive kind of support that matches the severity of symptoms, not the most restrictive. And we also know that holding people against their will, like there's no magic that happens there. Like there's nothing. And in fact, what usually happens is people become more distrustful of the mental health system uh, because having your civil rights taken away does not feel good. It doesn't feel like people have your best interest at heart. So, um, you know, when we look at the data post uh, forced hospitalization, we see that the suicide rates go up, not down. So, but that whole response is panic and, and sometimes it's panic of liability. So the schools want to wash their hands of it. The, the, the law enforcement doesn't know that there's other routes to take. We don't have great infrastructure in some parts of our country for other types of supports in crisis situations. So the ER is the only place. And if that's not open, then people go to jail, not talking about children, but you know, that's kind of our response is that we have, we have this incredible panic and our belief system is, well, if we just lock them up, then, you know, we've passed the hot potato. Uh, somebody else has got the problem now. Rather than looking at what can be most helpful, what does this person need? Where do they hurt? What's driving this behavior? And how do we get those needs met for them in the least restrictive way? So, yeah, I have a lot of strong feelings about this. Now, that said, there are amazing therapists out there. There are amazing communities uh, for mental health support and suicide prevention that are, are doing state-of-the-art best practices. And what we need is a better, well, we need better training for all of our mental health support uh, systems um, to make sure that they know what the best practices are, because many of them don't. Um, and that we need easier access to all of those things so that um, People can find their way there without uh, without all these without a lot of bureaucracy uh, and a lot of trial and error. Yeah, that barrier to entry definitely is is something I see as a huge problem in 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 adults and the first responders that are in crisis that I come across. Because, as we mentioned before we start recording, I think and I know we're both in the echo chamber somewhat, um, but I think that that stigma is starting to be taken away now. It's certainly in 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 our professions, people are like, you know, some of the great leaders that we have are saying no you're wrong this this is this needs to be addressed you know this is not weak to to speak out but now the question is well, well where do i go and then you're oh well there's this great person up here yeah but they don't take blue cross blue blue shields exactly. you know what i mean so so how do we what's the next step for getting appropriately trained counselors who understand the profession that they're supposed to be working with and and matching them up as seamlessly as possible with the people in crisis or even not not in crisis. Yeah, I'm encouraged by some of the um, some of the activity that I see in the first responder space, uh, and in, in some ways, y'all are leading a lot of what the other industries are coming to know to be true, which is that services like mental health services that seem a little daunting or, or unusual or maybe not culturally acceptable become far more accessible when they seem trustworthy. So you know, having some certification process basically uh, to, uh, you know, kind of like a, um, you know, a stamp of, of approval from the industry that providers have taken the time to understand whatever culture they're serving. Like they, they you know, I know the NFFF National Fallen Firefighters Foundation has a uh, um, 
you know, a, a certification process where, you know, providers go on ride-alongs and demonstrate an investment in the fire service and, and show that they have some clinical competence, they get a stamp of approval. So there's a little bit more trust there that that provider uh, is friendly to first responders and knows what they're doing and can, you know, be less of a hunt and pack kind of situation. So I think having more of that, some industry-specific or, or population-specific uh, competence uh, can help with that. Um also, most mental health professionals don't know what they don't know when it comes to suicide prevention. This is a whole another uh, big area of frustration for many of us. Um, there has been advances in science over the last two and three decades that really ha- not only uh, has created a whole body of work that can lead us to be more effective, but has actually disproven some of the things that many of us learned in graduate school a couple of decades ago. The problem is that, uh, and, and it's actually shown that some of those things are harmful. And providers don't know this, and they keep doing these practices, and lo and behold, they're not helping people. So we need some kind of um, continuing education requirement within our mental health providing community that people stay on top of the best practices and the evidence-based science around what they should be doing when somebody comes in expressing suicidal thoughts and behavior. Because right now, your experience with your kiddos is, is pretty much the norm. Uh, people freak out, and then they, they, they force hospitalization, and then it's kind of like a revolving door for that person afterwards because they get hot potatoed from one provider to another provider because nobody knows what they're doing, and they're all super scared. So that's the stuff we've got to stop. Yeah, um, it was really alarming as both times he's been in there, there were like several of his classmates in there too from mm-hmm. one single school, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's clearly, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. Now, you, you mentioned, though, about some 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 uh, ways that you were taught a couple of decades ago that are actually harmful now. Have you got any examples of those? Yeah, one of the biggest ones is the, the no suicide contract that we were all taught to do. And basically, you know, if somebody says you're thinking about suicide, you know, one of the first words out of the therapist's mouth is, oh, excuse me, let me go pull this contract out of my desk. And will you sign here that you promise not to kill yourself on my watch? Okay, great. Now, the, that kind of thing um, was a standard thing that we were taught in graduate school. Not so much today, but certainly for the providers that are in their, you know, late 40s, 50s, and 60s, yes, that's what we were taught. And... Uh, we now know, first of all, we were taught to do that, that it was going to provide us with some legal protection. Should they die by suicide? We're like, well, see, they signed the contract. And that's just a bunch of baloney. No, no protection. Um, the, the clients often see it as a CYA from the therapist, like, oh, okay, I see where your uh, true priorities are. Um, and it also is, uh, it takes the provider's mind off the game because, well, they promised they weren't going to kill themselves. So, you know, onto the other things. So that's one thing um, that is really not, not only not best practice, but we have now evidence to show that it's harmful. Um, Another thing that we were taught is that suicide is just a symptom of something else. It's a symptom of depression. It's a symptom of something else. And if we, if we treat the something else, the suicide stuff will just fall away. Uh, and we now know that's not true either. Suicide is not always a symptom of a mental health condition. We don't know exactly how much because a lot of people who die by suicide, most people who die by suicide have never made it to a mental health professional to get a diagnosis. But we think that it's maybe about half. Half the people are connected to some kind of mental health condition that's driving that suicidal intensity. And the other half are just having really really strong, toxic environmental things happening to them, like job strain and discrimination and prejudice and, uh, you know, 
violence and trauma and all kinds of environmental things. And so getting them to counseling uh, is not going to necessarily solve the problem if they continue to be in a really toxic environment. So, so that's been another shift too, that we, that the, the treatment really needs when people come in for treatment and have suicidal intensity, that the treatment really needs to be suicide specific, focusing on understanding what that means for the person and, and working hard to get those needs met in other ways. Um, and it's not just up to getting, I say, you know, quote unquote, troubled people to, to counselors. We also have to look at what's driving people to despair in their environment and work on those areas as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned about CYA, that that seems to be one of the most horrendous elements of, of everything. So, for example, if I run on you and you refuse and, and, you know, we pull out our little computer and, you know, I have to get you to sign the thing saying you don't want to go with, it, with me, which you don't. Um, you know, that's supposed to be cover our ass, you know, but then mm -hmm. you do this, exactly. you do this little squiggle on the screen, which looks like a spider had an epileptic fit on because it doesn't even match your, your signature anyway. And I always wondered like, what's that actually going to look like in court? You literally have to say, well, that's not my signature. You know what I mean? So th there's this facade of cover your ass that I mm -hmm. think has got in the way of so many areas. Of doing of the just, right thing. Yeah. And just got common right sense thing. too. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. Uh, I think the good, the other thing that really gives me hope and encouragement are all the people coming forward, sharing their stories, like we're starting to see uh, in the first responder community and in other pockets. Um, people who have been in in the closet about their experience uh, are coming forward and saying, "You know what? I've experienced this stuff. Here's what was helpful to me. Here's what was not helpful to me. Here's what we need moving forward." But it's their lived experience. It's a it's a human being with a powerful, powerful story of recovery and trials and tribulations that really make this come alive. It's not like those crazy people. It's my neighbor. It's my it's me. It's my family member. It's my best friend. And now all of a sudden, that's starting to happen in a much bigger way, and it's changing how we view everything. Yeah. Well, well there's so many elements to that, and I want to kind of explore some of the, the fingers of it. Um, I, there was a, a, a suicide recently with a firefighter in, in our area a few years ago, and you know the, the I can't remember who it was now, but someone said, oh, yeah, but they, they were going through divorce. And, and immediately, this is a firefighter that had been on for about 20 years, mm -hmm. sleep deprived for 20 years, you mm -hmm. know, all these other things going on. And you telling me that because there was a, a, a marital issue, that was the, the sole thing. And I think that's the other, other area is that people are always looking for what was the cause, singular, the cause, instead right. of the, the layers. So the first area that I'd love to explore, um, and I heard you talk about it in, in the speech, and I, I see it so, so much. With so many of the men and women that I interact with, because they're usually passionate people that adore the fire service, the you know the law enforcement environment, and they're in these toxic environment. They're they're superiors, maybe of fucking idiots, for lack of a better word. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. where you know, they are. I mean, they just they just promote it up, and they're suppressing these people that are trying to to make things better, trying to make it safer, trying to increase training, trying to bring mental health to their department. Um, what what uh. How much of a, a, an impact does a toxic work environment make on mental health specifically? Oh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And again, in the United States in particular, this is an underappreciated part of the conversation. And some other, uh, you know, Australia is having bigger conversations about this. Canada certainly has embarked on it. But um, the, 
in the United States, we, we'd like to chalk it up all to the, you know, quote unquote, crazy people. Um, but there's so much that happens in our workplaces that can make or break a person. Um, it was hundreds of years ago, I think maybe 150 or so, um, you know, Emil Durkheim said work is absolutely central to a community's well-being. It's a structure that gives people purpose, a sense of community. When it's working well, it is like one of the most core elements of a society that holds us together. Awesome. However, in today's society, our workplaces tend not to be working very well. And there's a whole body of literature that we never talk about. And that is about how job strain is directly connected to suicide risk. There's, there doesn't have to be depression involved. There doesn't have to be any kind of mental health condition. Certain aspects of job strain are connected to increased risk of suicidal thoughts, suicidal behavior, or suicide death. And it's things like, um, you know, job autonomy and job variety, job control and job insecurity. You got that suite of things in your job. Uh, chances are good that you're not very happy uh, and even despairing. Um, then we've got all kinds of toxic elements like uh, bullying, harassment, hazing prejudice, discrimination, you know, day after day, week after week experiencing of that, you feel that you don't matter um, and you feel a step out. And we know that those are two huge drivers of suicidal despair. So if you have a culture, which is often true in a lot of um, first responder communities of kind of this, you know, hazing and, and uh, you know, you got to prove yourself kind of before you can come into the inner circles kind of thing, uh, you know, that does damage to people on the long term. You talked about sleep disruption. This is like my biggest thing of late. Oh, mine <laughs> um, too. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so huge because uh, for some reason, you know, over generations, we have come to pride ourselves on how little sleep we get. And it's like a bragging thing. And we set up work situations that's almost impossible to get quality sleep. And now we know. Now we know with very clear data that sleep deprivation is absolutely destructive. Uh, it's just, it's very, makes people very unsafe because they have little microbursts of sleep and their brains are not functioning well to make really critical, sharp, fast decisions. Uh, and if you do it long enough, your brain completely hijacks you, tells you things that aren't true, creates unnecessary fear and paranoia and all kinds of stuff. So, and then long, long term, this is what really scares people. I think the long, long term of it increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, there's all kinds of things that we need to do to help people, especially who work in 24 seven, um, shifts, uh, creative ways to get quality sleep. And, and again, I've seen some of the fire service spaces make that a bit, a better priority. How do we create the places where we sleep, uh, to be more conducive to sleep? How do we, you know, make sure that, you know, people have quiet and, uh, that the, the whole space is set up for, for people to actually get some sleep whenever possible. So that's a huge one. Um, we also have, uh, you know, this idea of feeling trapped and um, building up a lifestyle around a certain level of income and then having it turn into a grind that people can't escape uh, effort and reward imbalance and supervisor worker conflict that's really toxic. I mean, all of these things, we've got data to show. Oh, and the big one too is... Um, you know, when work spills over to family and causes disruption in the family or when family strife and hardship um, spill over to work and there's not an accommodation for that, those things also are connected to a lot of despair. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm so glad that you you touched on all those areas and the sleep is one I, I harp on about a lot. But we have found ourselves in the American fire service and, you know, other fire services around the the, the, the world as well to literally, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be sarcastic when I say this, 
so you're going to come on as a as a, a bank teller you know you're you're going to be counting money um and then uh you know put some stuff away and that's it your work day's done it's going to be 40 hours okay sweet thanks um you're going to wake up at three in the morning um jump out of bed get on a, the back of a fire truck drive the back when you get there a ladder's going to go up you're going to go up with a chainsaw cut a hole in then you're going to go down do a search in the building you're going to pull out a three-year-old child take your gear off do mental drug calculations while you're doing cpr and take the child to hospital yeah i think we're gonna we're gonna do a 56 hour work week for you yeah it's exactly. insanity i mean we talk we're in a mental health podcast it is absolutely insanity and people talk about well we'll you know we'll we'll maybe we'll come in at night and then do a, a shift till the following no you need to make the work week back to the regular person and create more opportunities for rest and recovery which mm-hmm. in turn is going to save you a lot of money anyway because your right. people will not fall apart right exactly exactly that's such a good example Right. Well, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm glad. I, like I said, I'm just trying to collate all these great people from all these different fields that every single one of them agrees with the sleep deprivation, except my own profession, which it seems like, you know, you, it's just such a hard sell to get people to realize that the way we fix so many of our issues is to actually address the work week, not the shift. Um, well, it, and I think it's because your profession attracts really tough people. And what are the ways you show that you're tough? Yeah, I can handle more. I can handle more. I got it. Don't worry about me. And meanwhile, inside, you know, things are falling apart, but nobody can can say it so that, you know, you don't want to be the person who says, you know what, I'm not up for it, you know, because then you're seen as maybe the weak link because, well, the rest of us are up for it. What is, what's wrong with you? So I think all of that bravada also gets in the way. Yeah, absolutely. But then if they, if they redirect to uh, the world's, you know, special forces and elite athletes, they'll see how much recovery factors into their performance. And you want to be the best firefighter or cop, you need to rest more. All right. So then switching to, you mentioned about the uh, organizational stress again. So one, one area that I came across a few years ago was uh, Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe, and, and, and really understanding that missing tribal element in a positive tribal way, not a stab each other over a football team <laughs> tribal way. Um, but, and that's to me is, is where we see some of the issues in, whether it's the office or, or the firehouse. Um, personally, I've witnessed, you know, oh, we need to break up these crews. They're getting too, too friendly with each other. And, you know, they, they're becoming too, too unified or we're going to move them to different stations or whatever it is. And that's what I see a lot of that toxic element comes from is when a firehouse is becoming cohesive and then obviously creating a good mental health space. They're tearing them apart or, you know, rest and recovery. They come in, oh, you're sitting on a lazy boy. Then you need to go out and, you know, test hydrants or whatever it is. So, um, do you, do you view that as well as, as when you have that tribal, that, that group, that feeling of, of, of belonging in, in, let's say, for example, a fire station, um, that is when your mental health is going to improve and then breaking that apart. The reason why it is so destructive on mental health is because you're taking someone away technically from their tribe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the findings that we've seen in the fire service is that wildland firefighters often have higher levels of, of suicide because they don't have that community. They're just ad hoc deploying, um, working together for short periods of time, but they don't have that same sense of community and connection and trust within that uh, that group where they can feel supported. So I totally agree. And I think that, you know, what we should be doing is finding even more ways to forge those bonds 
um, so that people do feel like everybody's got each other's back. There's a high level of trust and, um, and a place to land, a place to land when things are hard, where you know you're going to be um, looked after and loved and taken care of and supported. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the concept of the firehouse and, and having the kitchen table culture is a key part of the resilience of the fire service. And to disrupt that or to not foster that is a big mistake. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned as well about the, the hazing. That's another thing that everything's been labeled now, you know, and so political correctness has swung completely, you know, one way where everyone's terrified of saying anything now, which, as you know, if a firefighter can't offload with harmless jokes, then that that's a coping mechanism. But then you've also got, um, you know, the 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 element of I mean, I've never considered it hazing at all. But when you set the bar high, the rite of passage, the the training, the commit, com- working out together, that brings people together. And I think that works against prejudice then. If you're, you know, black, Hindu, Sikh, female, gay, whatever firefighter that's, you know, deemed a minority and you throw on your gear and you perform, you're, you're mm-hmm. one of the people. That's and right. if you're a white male from, you know, from Idaho and you're a shitty fireman, it doesn't matter that you're a white, you know, it, it's irrelevant. And we always say when you put your gear on, you can't tell what's behind that mask. Either just a good firefighter or a bad firefighter. So this labeling, um, you know, and hazing is hazing. Like the, the, we all know what hazing is. Hazing is, you know, abuse. But the, the rite of passage, I think, is a way of bringing people from all cultures together. And the moment we start labeling mm-hmm. each other, oh, we're the black union, the Hispanic union, is the, the female union. You're not a union. Take the word union out. You're, you're, you're pigeonholing each other. We should be able to come together. And again, it's that tribal thing. But if we start, pushing away people because of their skin color or, you know, whatever it is, we're working against the very heart of what it is to be a firefighter. Yeah. I think the, for me, hazing is really about um, uh, inducing shame and humiliation and, and, and breaking down people in, in a way that's not healthy. I think what you talked about as a, as the alternative to that is striving towards a challenge that's really, really hard and working together as a team and kind of pulling each other along. That's, you know, that's the rite of passage stuff. That's the stuff that, you know, you get to the other side and as a group, you're like, Oh my God, I I didn't think we're going to make it, but we made it. And aren't we proud? And aren't we so, we feel like a celebration of the, of our accomplishments as a community. That's the stuff that's, that's really great. Um, I, I guess I would have a, maybe a slightly differing opinion about um, the different fa- factions. And I certainly see the, the negative, um, the negative consequences in some spaces of the call out culture and white privilege and all of that stuff. I think uh, that, that approach to inclusion and equity is not working great because people, like you said, just start to hunker down and not reach out and feel afraid to say anything. And I think that's not going to cause bridging. I think it's just going to cause resentment and, uh, and, mistrust. So, but I do know that for communities that have been marginalized and communities that have been, um, you know, traumatized in so many ways, in so many different ways, prejudice and discrimination, that sometimes it does help them find their feet and get their voice to get 
a community of people who've had similar experiences. So for me, it's a both and. I think we need um, it, it, it. It's good to have people to get organized and find uh, a, a communal voice to advocate for things that help. And it's also important that they bridge uh, to a larger group and um, bring people along. Uh, I think the combative uh, in your face of you're wrong and you're a racist is blah, you know, doesn't, doesn't build bridges, doesn't get people to come along. Um, especially when they don't have to, they don't have to come. So I think there's a lot of work that we're doing now in, in, in inclusion and, and diversity and equity that, uh, we have a long way to go. Yeah. Well, staying on that. So, so, so looking at completely the other side of the coin where it, there is a complete abuse of, of, uh, prejudice. I had, uh, Ron Stallworth on, uh, just last week and he was the real black Klansman, the, the black, police officer from colorado that that infiltrated the kkk yeah 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 i love it fascinating story you know there's definitely element of you know all kinds of racism from black panthers to the kkk in his story um what are you seeing as far as uh prejudice in our professions and then the impact on mental health of the, the the truly you know true abuse of those yeah it's huge so when um you know we know a lot from from Thomas Joyner's work and a lot of other places that when you feel a step out, so their community culture, the community norms are one thing and you're not that thing, that feeling of being a step out is hugely detrimental. You don't know who you can trust. Uh, Some of the things you hold dear are not what the other things hold dear. So you hide these parts of yourself and so forth. Um, Active discrimination. So I would say that's kind of a more passive way of doing it, but active discrimination where, um, you know, you're not, you're not privy to information. You are, um, given worse work. You are, uh, talked about in a demeaning way. You are, um, given consequences, uh, that other people with the same level of performance are not given. Uh, that, that is really hard to come through, especially when, you know, the majority of your community is all in alignment that that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, that, that, feeling of hopelessness and a sense of purposelessness can come through when you just don't, you don't know how to advocate for yourself or what your options are. So it it absolutely is, is part of the equation. And and when we start, um, so one of the things that we do in workplace suicide prevention work is uh, it's more than just a training on how to have a conversation. It's more than just awareness posters with the hotline on them. I'll say all those things are important. Um, what's really important to do on the front end of any kind of systematic um, suicide prevention effort is to listen, is to go on the front end before you do any implementation and listen. Listen to what the people are saying about what's driving distress and despair. And I'm going to tell you, it's not all about depression and addiction and anxiety and trauma. A lot of it is about feeling left out about, about this, uh, about discrimination, about what well, we already talked about, about the toxic job stress, but um, a lot of it is feeling like I don't matter here and I am not seen here. And so the whole work around diversity and inclusion is also part of the work of suicide prevention. Yeah. And you touched on something just then that reminded me of, of the retirees. It's something I've heard from many, many people who were absolutely admired in the fire service and law enforcement, EMS, dispatch, whatever uh, branch they were in. But the realization that the moment those bay doors close behind you, there's a new a new body sitting in that seat and you start questioning, was I even part of something? And then also you're now removed from that tribe. You're not there every third day. Um, another element of tribalism I think is very important is is the retirees. And, and I believe we see a lot of suicides in, in that kind of generation too. Yeah, whenever somebody has, what I say, all their eggs in one identity basket, 
So, or, you know, 90% of their eggs in one identity basket, then when you transition out of that role, it is really hard. So we see this in a lot of first responder communities, you know, I'm a firefighter first, I'm a police officer first. Um, but it's in other places too, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a mother. Um, when, when that role starts to transition, your sense of self is really threatened. And so we're now also looking at what happens in those kinds of identities when people move into retirement and especially for people where firefighting is their life, that's where their social networks are. That's where their sense of self-esteem is. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're shut out. They don't have the the codes to the, the things and the keys and the badges and the, sense of authority and, and, and all of that, it's just gone. So how do we help with that transition? Uh, because I, I don't know what the current data are, but I, I remember from my days working as a police psychologist that it's not too long after retirement, you start seeing people die, like of all kinds of stuff, heart disease, cancer, oh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So there's, there's, there, there's stuff we got to do in that transition, not just preparing people financially for that transition, but preparing people uh, emotionally and psychologically about what that's going to look like. And there is so much that retirees can continue to offer the fire service in so many different ways. How don't we? How about we uh, engage some of those gifts and wisdom um, to to mentor the next generation of firefighters, and uh, so that they continue to stay connected and they continue to have a purpose that's um, helpful for everybody. Yeah, no, I agree. When I forget who it was now, one of my guests said the same thing: like bring the retirees back in for orientations, for academies, for. For you know, because I mean, there's there's someone with thirty years worth of knowledge that just literally exactly. walked out the door. Yeah, well, and also peer support, right? So a lot of times people are afraid to step forward and say, "Yes, I've experienced these things," because they're afraid, honestly, of of discrimination. Like if I came forward and said, "Yeah, I, I live with addiction and I'm in recovery," oh, geez, we got to worry about you, right? So it's potential potential fears of, of discrimination. But a retiree can come forward and say, "Yes, I went through these hard times." And here's why it didn't work for me. And here's when it did, when I got help. Uh, and there's no repercussions for that retiree. There's no fear of that. And so they can be that trusted peer um, and can help cultivate a healthy peer culture because of that perspective, uh, looking back in the rearview mirror. Yeah, love that. I know uh, friends of firefighters, they have a lot of retirees in FDNY that go back and help out there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Well, then uh, one area we haven't touched on that you work with a lot is is construction as well. So firstly, a lot of first responders were in that profession before. Some of them still do it on the side. And then I'm sure there's people listening that just you know aren't first responders but are in that world. So what are you seeing in, in that industry? Yeah. So it's been a, a really interesting pathway. Uh, when we first started doing workplace suicide prevention work in about 2007, we couldn't get anybody to pay attention. Maybe just a little bit of the military, a little bit of the kind of nonprofit community that we were already working in that space. And then it was probably 2010 to 2013 that the first responders started to come on board because they had tracked their death data and they could see clearly that suicide was a problem. Um, then we just had one contractor, I call him uh, ground zero for the whole construction movement and suicide prevention. John Kinning uh, runs a, a contracting company with his brother in Colorado called RK. And we were connected through a leadership networking group. And he said, I, you know, when you talk about who's at risk for suicide, you're talking about my guys. And I said, I know. And he said, well, let's do something because I don't want to have a tragedy. Let's figure out how to get in front of this. And so we started doing you know, the whole enchilada that I've alluded to, the needs and strengths assessment and the the full-on dripping it into health and safety culture across communication and training and resource and policy audit and leadership engagement and the whole stuff. And he says, 
oh my God, we're about three months in. He says, I had no idea. We have unleashed something here that I didn't even know existed. And there's so much need here. There's so many people suffering. There's so many people worried about their kids. And our EAP is not working for our people. We got to change the whole thing up. Let's, let's, how do we take this beyond my little company here and go national? And so his company underwrote this construction industry blueprint that we launched in 2015. And ever since that, we've been off to the races. Now, I should mention that at no point in these early days did we have quality data that showed us that, yes, indeed, uh, construction had high rates of suicide. But we knew, the suicide prevention community knew that what has happening in construction is a perfect storm of risk. It's a male-dominated industry that's very stoic and has a high tolerance of drug and alcohol use, a lot of pain uh, that then leads to opiate addiction, um, a lot of travel away from family, a lot of um, do more with less, do more with less pressure culture, uh, a lot of um, job insecurity with the ebb and flow of the economy. I mean, there's just so many things that were, were poised to cause this kind of risk. So uh, it wasn't until we got a first report from the CDC in 2016. They retracted it, came out with another report in 2018 that ranked construction and extraction number one for suicide risk. And now that we have data, quality data to support these claims, um, people are clamoring because now we know. We know uh, how much um, construction is at risk for this. Uh, what has given me a c incredible hope around it is that construction culture is incredibly pragmatic and fast moving. So while the first responder community I see is kind of making incremental steps along the way, it's a little bit of a slower, old school, established culture, construction's fast. I mean, they don't have time to waste. So we're getting all kinds of stuff stood up uh, in a very short period of time. We've got the Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Uh, we're hi, hi, puppy. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, Construction Industry Alliance for Suicide Prevention is a place where hundreds of professional associations and, and companies are starting to come together to share best practices and to, um, and to learn from one another about how to do this work. We've got, uh, we've got trainings coming forward. Uh, I, I, my, my, my speaking and training calendar is completely full now for months out, and a good 80% of it is construction folks. So training foremen, training managers, training apprentices about, uh, how, you know, what we need to do. How do we identify things early in the process? How do we give people uh, emotional regulation skills and tools? How do we help them build out their A-team when things go bad? They got people they can reach out to. How do we make sure that their mental health services are uh going to be quality and using best state-of-the-art practices. I mean, all of this work is happening at lightning speed in construction. So that's uh, that's really exciting. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head. They said, we haven't got time to, to waste. And that should be the case when people are dying. And that's what's so... Um, you know, frustrating with the mental health stuff, with cancer, heart disease, sleep deprivation. I mean, all these things that are interrelated is, you know, like you said, one department will do really well and then the, the neighboring department will be dragging their heels or even poo-pooing it. And it's just, I don't understand why we can't look at all these other industries and go, you know, why are we not doing the same? I understand that, you know, some are, are uh, you know, they're not um, civil servants, you know, they're, they're, they're companies. But regardless, it's about investing in your people and, and, you know, you would assume some sort of sense of humanity, not wanting your men and women to, to die. 
Well, I think, um, you know, the other piece of it is uh, the disservice we've done by sharing uh, almost exclusively the wrong story about suicide. So our story in the United States is largely this is a medical issue and the only people qualified to handle it are the expert mental health providers. That's our story that we tell over and over again. And so that has made people very fearful. Like, I'm no expert in this space. I don't know what we're doing. And, you know, it's life and death. This is super scary. And it's not our issue. It's not a workplace issue. It's a medical issue. People need to go see their doctors. And the, the truth of the matter is the people most at risk often are not seeing their doctors. They're, they're white-knuckling it and they're dying. So to overcome that barrier of fear is the biggest part of the first step. And, um, and we do that again by making it, making it lo- really meaningful. It's got to be by, about, and for the people that are living it. Not, not me coming swooping in. It's got to be people within a system who are stepping forward and saying, you know what, this is important here. It's important to our mission. It's important to our people. And it's important to me personally. And here's why. When we've got that kind of leadership and that kind of um, magic happening within a system, then then we can really make some good changes. It's when people feel like, oh God, another another thing we have to do and another thing we have to be compliant with and another thing that's not related directly to our mission, that's when we have all kinds of hangups and, and we get stalled out. Yeah. And I think another, another area that I've seen over and over again, um, and I, I get emails a lot asking for, can, can I send them studies on why a 42-hour work week would be better than a 56-hour work week? And I stop and I just stare at the screen for a moment, you know, exasperated. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you want me to show you studies why 16 hours a week less is going to make people less tired and they get an extra anyway. Um, but, but it's that whole, you know, don't wait for science to prove what you already know. We know we have an obesity epidemic in America. I could go to Walmart right now and tell you that we have a very sick nation without any research whatsoever. So uh, how much research and how many people do we have to lose before we'll start acting? And, you know, we have, if it's not in our profession and the fire service is really shit at doing research in, in health, then look at the military and, you know, sports and all these other things that are apples to apples. You don't have to have that. But by waiting and, and, you know, being complacent and wanting a thousand studies done before you can prove that we're at risk of, of suicide, we're losing hundreds and hundreds of men and women. And that's what is, is just, sickening is we don't need any more research we live in in an incredible information age now now is the time to start acting that's right and another another real important tension to acknowledge is that research is slow high quality rigorous uh control group kinds of research studies take years to actually come forward and be published and by the time that happens often our our technology, our uh, ability to move on the ground is in a whole different place. So we're, we have this tension that research is slow and innovation is fast. And, um, you know, we're going to do the best we can because research is super important. But we can't wait. We cannot wait. We got to do pilots. We got to do faster moving, smaller kinds of things to uh, at least make sure we're not causing harm. And we got we to gotta build upon other spaces where we already have data and make quality inferences about, well, if it works over there, it's probably going to work over here. Um, or if this is showing promise, then we can probably expand on it a little bit and, and see how we do over there. Uh, so for example, um, we have tremendous amounts of data, um, years and years of randomized control trials around a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. We know 
it works in, in reducing all kinds of problems. It teaches people how to regulate their emotional states and regulate their interpersonal reactions. It's super important, like life skill kinds of stuff. Um, and historically, it's been owned by mental health providers. You got to get all kinds of training in it. You got to get certified in it. It's been kind of held in just this small little space. Well, the founder of it, Marshall Linehan, is in her part of her career now. She's like, you know what? This stuff works. Uh, we have evidence that peers can teach it to one another. We have evidence that people can learn a good chunk of it just by reading books. We got to give this stuff away. We got to get it into the hands of people who can actually deliver it to the places where they can't get to therapy. Uh, and so that's an example. Like we've got evidence that it works in a clinical setting. We can share that information and get it out into other hands so people could use different types of skills and tools and not have it all, you know, kind of embargoed into one little part. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, that's what we were talking about before recorded as well is what I'm loving to see now is is things start to surface from from completely lateral uh, avenues. Some could be purely clinical research. Some could be people have tripped upon it. So for example, you've got EMDR, obviously a very um, clinical side that seems to be doing very well, but then you've got the equine therapy world that people are reporting incredible results. So some yep. are very research-based, some are more anecdotal. Yes. And, uh, you know, I would also advocate because some of them feel more sciencey, right? If we're, uh, if we're giving people a dose of a treatment that feels very researchy versus, you know, being around animals or, or heaven forbid, doing something with the arts, right? That seems way woo-woo. Um, but, but you talk to people and often that's what they'll attribute their wellness to. I, I have one um, dear friend of mine that I've known for since we were kids on the on the school bus together, in, you know, in elementary school. He went and served a number of tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then he was a police officer. He's got more more boatloads of trauma than anybody I ever know, plus a you know head injury and and pain issues and so forth. And he's so freaking resilient. Um, but he's been through everything, every single type of treatment, medication, you name it. He's been there, and he says, you know what keeps me here? My dog, he's got a service dog named Russell. And he says, this dog is with me 24 seven and has saved my life countless times. Uh, and so he gets all fired up when people poo poo uh, animal assisted therapies and animal service animals because um, they're amazing. And we do have evidence, but for some reason, it's just not seen as, as rigorous as some other evidence that we have for things that maybe are uh, researched in more controlled laboratory environments. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I have you as you heard, I have a German Shepherd who's barking mm -hmm. and trying to kill the FedEx guy on the other side of the door. <laughs> um, but and she's not officially a service dog, but she's absolutely part of my therapy, and my quiet time is walking her in the morning. And uh, the irony is that I point out to people, each firehouse used to have a dog years ago. Mm, that's right. And we got rid of the service animal, you know, inadvertently because of lawsuits again. You know, God forbid that you know a dog licks a child and they sue him for twenty million dollars. <laughs> so. But um, anyway, so I want to transition to one more area and then we'll get to, to man therapy in the book. Um, but you touched on um, addiction for a moment. In in some of the, the journeys that I've had now, I've really been kind of my eyes have been opened with the connection between addiction and, and mental health and, and areas like um, I talked about this many times. Portugal, I went over there and interviewed a gentleman who decriminalized spearheaded the decriminalization of addicts so of not smuggling not selling but of, of addiction so these men and women in portugal became patients instead of criminals and they literally reversed their epidemic in about eight years so i personally would love to see people start to understand addiction 
being, you know, a mental health issue rather than just lock them all away. Um, what is your perception of addiction and mental health? Oh, absolutely. Uh, totally, totally intertwined, totally intertwined. And so people often, um, well, come into the world with some predisposing vulnerabilities. Often we can definitely see a genetic link for addiction. Uh, so hardwired to come in to maybe have a different dopamine response than other people upon first use. Okay. So we know that, um, we also know that people turn to, drugs and alcohol as a way of self-medicating. We're, we're attracted to certain types of drugs and, and because they serve our purpose. If we, if we can't sleep enough, you drink enough, you're going to pass out. If you uh, have heightened anxiety response or response to trauma, you can numb that stuff out with certain types of drugs. If you are despairing, we got drugs that take away suffering. Like we got it. Uh, and if you have a first experience with that, that is so powerful. It's euphoric. It feels like this is the answer. Um, your pathway to addiction is is quite short. So the 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 then you get the whole cascading thing that happens with you know relationships falling apart and legal issues and you can't procrastinate your job, but you can't get out of it because your brain keeps telling you no 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 this is the answer this is what worked and so it's absolutely absolutely tied to on the front end to mental health stuff is it's a way that we learn to cope and on the back end because of the consequences of addiction cause all kinds of disruption in people's lives. So the, the moral judgment that we still hold out over this stuff is really problematic because again, it, it, it um, makes people less likely to, to acknowledge and reach out or even self acknowledge. Like, I don't, you know, that, that, we're not doing well in this space. Um, I'll share another little anecdote that's um, near and dear to my heart. And uh, this is about my nephew who has given me permission to share this story. Um, my brother had a son he never met. And um, when he was a young person, he had a, a relationship and it resulted in a pregnancy. And he was confused and conflicted about this. Um, and he hemmed and hawed about his ambiguity about this relationship and then he died. So after he died, we came in and, and started to develop a relationship with this young man and he was thriving. His name is also Carson and he was thriving in school and in sports and all kinds of stuff. And then he went off and got a full ride scholarship to the university of Vermont. And like many of us did when he got to school, uh, he got a little tangled up in drug and alcohol culture, except instead of weed and beer, it was Percocet. And so watching this, young person with so much promise uh, and, and so much beauty just fall off a cliff in such a short period of time was a huge eye-opener to me about the power of, of opiates in particular just to steal someone's soul. I mean, it was just crazy there for a few years. He, he ended up, um, you know, shortly after graduation being homeless, uh, self-injecting heroin on a daily basis, running around with gangs, being witness to a murder, sleeping with a gun under his pillow because he was so afraid. Um, it was just absolutely insane. So uh, to see the power of that happening has really opened up my heart to, uh, you know, what happens to people when they get sucked in into this addiction. Um, I'll, I'll give you the footnote. So people don't worry, he's, he was able to extract himself from that and wean himself off of it and rebuild his life. And he wants me to share this story because he wants you all to know that he's a fighter and that he has been fighting for a life worth living and he's making strides and that also opiates are, uh, are wicked. Like it is absolutely wicked to get involved with that on a, on a, when it becomes uh, in the addiction level. So yeah, absolutely connected. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I've, I've seen. I mean, I had, um, 
uh, a gentleman on who wrote a book. Uh, Sam Canona is his name. He wrote a book about the, the the parallel between the prescription med crisis that we had with the pill mills and then the black tar heroin from Mexico. So when the pill mills went away and all these mm-hmm. adults were left strung out, well, then that's yep. when they started. I personally lost one of my, my firefighters from my last apartment to, I'm assuming, that exact same scenario. Um, and, you know, but then the other, the, the click down from that, that people kind of start to uh, uh, at least acknowledge the opiate crisis now, but is, is alcohol because that's legal. And that's the elephant in the room, I think, now. We started talking about depression or, you know, PTSD and suicide, but it's the alcoholism that is, I think, rampant in, in our professions. And, and again, by no judgmental to our peers, but they're at this certain point, there is no easier, more effective way of what you perceive as ramping down than drinking. But actually, you're already sleep deprived. Now you're killing the, the sleep Any on your days off. quality sleep. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so again, the, the places where we do see high levels of tolerance for alcohol misuse, we also are seeing high levels of suicide. So first responder communities, the construction industry, uh, the, the lawyer profession, they also drink heavily to cope with stress. Like, we see that these things are tied, like people use it to cope, but then it, it turns an ugly cheek and it creates a whole bunch of additional problems. Yeah. And it also seems that alcohol takes away, I, I refer to as, you know, those invisible hands when you're standing on the top of a tall building and you get too close and you feel them pushing you back, that, that you know, survivor element that you have. Well, you know, you, you lose that, I think, when you drink in the same way as and it's a kind of a crude example. But how many people have, have slept with someone the night before and they wake up the next day like, oh, I wouldn't have done that if I was sober. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same thing, really, is it's, you know, you, you wouldn't have got into a fist fight, you know, if you were sober, you wouldn't have done a lot of things. And I think that people that are in crisis, if they had been sober, probably wouldn't have got to that, that final step. But sadly, alcohol takes away those, those invisible hands and, and, uh, you know, allows them to do that. Let me just make one more comment that I've observed around this specifically in, in firefighter culture. And that is, um, sometimes in, in certain circles, alcohol is the social conduit. People will only show up to socialize one another if there's alcohol on board outside of work. Um, this is where all of the fun stuff happens. This is where all the cool kids are. And if for whatever reason you're no longer drinking or you've you know stopped drinking to levels of super excess, sometimes you're seen as suspect. Like, what's going on? Why aren't they participating? You know, are they better than us? And blah 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 blah. And then all of a sudden you're a step out, even though you're making a good decision for your health. You can feel like, you know what, you're not part of all the gossip, you're not on the inside circles, um, and people don't always know how to respond to you because then they got to look at their own behavior. So that is uh, just something I think we got to acknowledge and, and work through on some level because that's that's a huge issue. You never want to be on the outside circle in the fire service. It is all about, I got your back, high trust, we look out for one another. And when we've got this piece of feeling like, well, I'm not really part of those circles, then it's a it's a threat to that identity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, on that same line, uh, connecting with specifically men, um, you have a, you, know, you work with an incredible project, Man Therapy. So mm-hmm. when I, I saw the videos, I'm like, "This is genius! Why have I not seen it myself before?" I'm going to put the links to to Man Therapy on the website for this episode. But please tell me kind of how that started and just give an overview of what it looks like. Yeah, I love this story. So um, shortly after Carson died. Um, 
we dove into data because we were like, well, I wanted to understand what was happening here. And so we started looking and lo and behold, you know, the majority of people who die by suicide are just like Carson. Men in the middle years, uh, the majority, unlike him, have never, you know, stepped foot in any kind of mental health services. So we needed a different approach. And so we spent about 18 months doing research and development around this, talking to all kinds of guys, especially what we call double jeopardy men, men who have a number of risk factors who are also least likely to seek help on their own, kind of think more like traditional norms of masculinity. They're they're stoic. They're the people who people depend upon to solve problems. Um, they're not they're not likely to reach out. So we asked them, we said, you know, tell us, what do you what do you think? You know, what would help? And they said, well, you know, all those messages you mental health providers put out there, like if you're depressed, seek help. They they miss us. They miss us on two accounts. We don't see ourselves as depressed. There's really nothing wrong with us. We have a very stressful world. We have money issues. We have job issues. We have strain in our partnerships and we have concerns about our kids. It's outside of us. It's not in us. Um, and then if you're really telling us that the only way through that is to go seek help, you got to give us a much better sales job because it doesn't seem to us that, you know, talking about our feelings for an hour with a stranger is going to do anything except waste time. So we said, okay, well, what do you think would be helpful? Like who's the messenger? Is it a celebrity? Is it, uh, is it some kind of expert? And they said, no, it's another guy. It's a guy like me, uh, maybe somewhere a little bit higher than me in some kind of perceived power hierarchy I have in my head. It's a guy I have deep respect for. If that guy says, yeah, I've gone through a thing or two and, and uh, I've learned some things and I've, I've found some resources, I am far more likely to trust that guy than I am a person with a whole bunch of degrees after their name. And we're like, okay, cool. We can probably figure that out. How, how do we reach you? Like, how do we actually cut through the clutter and have you pay attention to something like this? And they said, oh, that's easy. And we're like, oh, good. Tell us. And they said, well, you make it funny. And we paused and we were like, you're kidding us, right? Well, there's no way. There's no way we can make mental health issues and suicide in particular funny without offending a whole bunch of people. And they said, well, that's your problem. You make it funny. You make it really good, funny, art kind of funny. We'll not only pay attention, we'll pass it along to other people. So after a number of trial and error with a very talented um, bunch of creative geniuses over at a full service advertising agency called Cactus uh, and another partner of ours um, from the Colorado Public Health and Environment Department, we had kind of a, a trifecta of um, expertise and passion to carry out this thing. And we created a fake therapist named Dr. Rich Mahogany, who's uh, manning up mental health by using wit and um, kind of um, turning some of the masculine norms on their head to show that sometimes those don't always work so well for guys. And the whole point of the humor is the bait. It draws the men in and we hope that they can... Um, our main goal that we want them to do is self-screen in the privacy of their own phones or computers. Just check in with themselves. How bad is it? Should I be worried about my level of depression or anger or substance use or anxiety? And then once they've completed that, and we've have, we have certain um, widgets just for first responders, if they identify as a first responder, then what happens is um, they get a whole bunch of content, um, self-help, peer help professional help, crisis help, depending on how they answer those questions that pop up like Pinterest. And then they can start to navigate um, what they want to do next. Um, we also have a number of videos. Some of them are funny because we found that the humor keeps people going. They keep exploring when they've got a burst of humor every once in a while. Um, and we just finished a randomized control trial, like that high level, rigorous, long-term science thing I was telling you about uh, in the state of Michigan. 
And it's going to be a little while before those results are fully published, but we can, I can tell you, because I'm on the inner circle, that it's very promising. It looks very good that man therapy makes a difference uh, in, in men who are thinking about suicide. Um, I'll just share with you one additional finding from that research that's coming forward, which is that anger is more connected to suicide risk than depression in our study, very large study. So anger is a, is a canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Um, when people are flying off the handle and not acting like themselves, super irritated and aggravated, um, that is a, one of those warning signs that we need to be paying a little bit more attention to. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you said that. I had uh, Travis Howells on the show who was one of the Charleston firefighters. I had to go in and retrieve his nine fallen firefighters from the fire uh, <laughs> and the super sofa, super sofa sensor fire. So it was a tongue twister. Um, and he really explored that area. He talked about that. He got into fist fight in the station and all kinds of things. And it's, again, another area that I've come across and probably in the last year where I looked at myself and my hair trigger that I had. And I'm not an angry person normally at mm-hmm. all, but, um, uh, you know, that is such a, a, a huge red flag. But when we look at it as, you know, in our profession, normally we're, we're like, Oh, well, you know, what got up his ass? You know, and, and unusually the firefighter response is to keep pushing the buttons, you know, make it worse. Yep, that's and, right. And now we have to completely reframe that. Like if someone's just being a bit wet, then that's one thing. But, you know, if someone clearly is going through some stuff and I remember I was going through my divorce and going through paramedic school and working on the busiest rescues and just was so sleep deprived, so fried. I was a single dad, you know, and, and there was one, one day I remember I almost knocked out one of my friends normally. Um, and so you've really got to take a step back and go, this is abnormal for this person. You know, what is going on? And I've seen that over and over again, even, even in, in every day now, when someone's being an asshole in, you know, in a line in the store, you're like, is this person really just a, just a horrible person or is there something going on and they're manifesting in this angry way? That's right. So uh, for all your listeners who um, either want to explore this yourself, it's mantherapy.org. And for all of you that are connected to departments, um, you know, we have uh, the ability to kind of deliver. We got posters and we can we can kind of drive the awareness of, of man therapy. And obviously we know there's women in first responder communities um, but it tends, you know, in a larger departments in particular, you know, can, can be a male dominated, um, area. And so you can put these up in the, in the bathrooms and in other places where men are, are more likely to congregate just to kind of get the conversation going and give them another suite of tools that they can use. And also the, and women can benefit from it too. We have a lot of women in first responder communities who are like, yeah, I know it's for guys, but you know, we can benefit from it as well. Absolutely. Now, where can people find that online? Yeah, mantherapy.org is the place to go. We also have a YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and search Richard Mahogany's, uh, his own channel, you'll find a suite of videos. And some of them are him being pretty funny. Um, but they're also a huge suite of um, lived experience videos. So a number of people, we have a lot of military videos and, and uh, a lot of guys from all kinds of walks of life kind of sharing their story of, of recovery and resilience. Fantastic. All right. Well, then I want to switch to the book. So tell me about the book you guys are writing. Oh, it's so exciting. So again, um, kind of coming out of that man therapy experience, we started to develop a community of men who, you know, just wanted more, you know, man therapy is really designed to be kind of a first pass. uh, And they got through the first pass and like, okay, you know, you you sold us, we're in what's next. And so we started to develop this community of men. And they said, uh, 
we want more of this. We want more stories. We want more strategy. We want more science. And finally, we decided um, another woman and I <laughs> so decided that okay, let's let's help this this move forward. This is really healthy. It's really inspiring. Let's help it move forward. And so, uh, Sarah Gear, myself, and another um, person, Frank King, started to uh, pull together some concepts of what it would look like to have a book series around men's mental health, and we call it Guts grit and the grind, uh, and, um, mental health mechanics, a mental mechanics manual. And we've designed it to be kind of like, uh, an auto repair manual, uh, where we use a lot of metaphors around, um, automobile maintenance and repair, uh, just to kind of tie it into frameworks that many men are already familiar with and understand things like preventative maintenance and things like, uh, troubleshooting and repair and overhaul, depending on, kind of where the the problems are and what we're going to do to try to prevent it. So we weave those metaphors in with some strategies that we know are helpful, uh, self-care around different types of mental health problems and uh, offer solutions and guidance to resources. And then the big chunk of the book are these men's stories that demonstrate how they use these tools um, and how their recovery came to be because they took a bold step into acknowledging that they were uh, overwhelmed and got some supports in place to get them through. So it's a love, love, love passion project. And we just launched our first book in the series on uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, we have a website, gutsgritgrind.com, gutsgritgrind.com, where um, this community is is being built. We've got all kinds of little you know, webinars and podcasts and all that kind of stuff popping up there too. Um, as men bring in other men, uh, we grow. <laughs> we started with one book, now we're at four books. And the storytellers keep coming forward, and it's just it's just wonderful to be a part of this and see how the men um, lift each other up. Brilliant. Yeah, well, that's something that I've seen with the, the podcast as well, and I'm sure you find the same with yours. Uh, Hope Illuminated podcast is storytelling pulls people in. Like I've, I've, I've sat in rooms of people where a mental health professional has gone through PowerPoint after PowerPoint and statistics and yeah. who, who's more likely yeah. and everything. Yes, and then it doesn't hook anyone. But when someone stands up there and tells how they had a gun in their mouth, how they were battling addiction, you know, and here they are now and they're, you know, they're in recovery and doing really well and heading up this new, you know, mental health initiative that really draws people in. So to have a book that you have an actual tangible, how can I fix this? Which is a very male trait. I want to fix it. Um, a coupled with the, the, the me too, you know, I can relate to these stories element. Um, it sounds like a great combination you know, that would be very, very valuable for everyone that reads it. Thanks. Sue. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to to work with um, all of everybody to put this forward. It was it's been three years in the making. So this week has been a huge celebration. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then speaking of the podcast, um, tell me about that. Where can people find that? Yeah, so I have uh, my own podcast called Hope Illuminated. You can find it on my website, sallyspencerthomas.com. I'm on uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the places where you listen to podcasts. You can find it, Hope Illuminated. And uh, I, do, I do two episodes a month. It's kind of um, you know, a light lift for me, but it's the most I can do at this point. And uh, I, I, again, interview uh, thought leaders all over the world. Some of them are heavy due to researchers. Some of them are clinicians. I have a lot of people people with lived experience and everybody tells their story on my podcast. So um, we know that everybody's got a story that connects them to this work. And so a lot of times we don't know what people's stories are. And so people share 
what drives their passion, how they got into this work. Um, they share a little bit of, of science. I'm very supportive of science. I think it's absolutely critical that we evaluate what we do and we keep investigating what works. And then um, it's also got to have some takeaways. So every podcast has a couple of takeaways that people can start to use in their life and in their practice and in their communities. So we want it to be very practical. So yeah, sallyspencerthomas.com. Brilliant. All right. Well, then a couple of closing questions for you. We talked about your book. Is there a book that you love to recommend that someone else has written? It could be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, I've got a couple that are kind of my favorite books on my bookshelf. And one of them, I think, uh, is true for a lot of people in my space. Uh, she just made a huge world of difference. And that that's Brene Brown. I think her book, uh, Daring Greatly, really got a lot of us to face our own vulnerability and fear of that and just step into the arena and and do what needs to be done and and let 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 people know that you know we're not perfect and we can connect around these areas of vulnerability and find uh, a much more authentic self through that process so i love all of Brene brown's work um from um from a storytelling standpoint, I think that's also really helpful for people uh, to figure out how to tell their story. It's not easy. Um, and so the, my book there is by Judy Carter. It's called The Message of You. And even if you never really tell your story publicly, it's just a great process to kind of figure out the narrative of your life. It is very healing to go back and look at your history and try to figure out what is the story you tell yourself about your life. And sometimes those stories do turn into the public ways that we change culture. Um, and then finally, my third book that I want to recommend is a book by Stacey Friedenthal. She's a, a professor of social work at the University of Denver. And she wrote a book called Helping the Suicidal Person. It's really designed for mental health providers, but there's so much in there that is so great and could really help peer support groups or just everyday people who are worried about someone, about how they can support uh, somebody who's maybe in trouble of suicide. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Obviously, I've heard of Brene. I'd love to actually get her on the show one day. But I'm the, Yeah, uh, don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but the other two books I haven't heard of, so I'm going to add them to my list as well. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, The Message of You, I think, would be a great one. Um, I'm trying to finish a book. And even though it's not a, a biography, I think trying to to give yourself permission to tell your story is, is a struggle for a lot of us as well. So I think that might be a, a good one for me to read very soon. Yeah, actually, I'll just give another resource there real quick. Um, I'm the president of a nonprofit called United Suicide Survivors International, and we have a online course. Um, so the website is unitedsurvivors.org. And on there, we've got an online course that walks people through the decision-making process of telling their story. Like, am I ready? Is this the right time? Have I weighed the pros and cons? What's in it for me? Why do I want to do this? And that kind of thing. So if you've got folks out there wondering, like, maybe I want to share my story, maybe I don't, that's a good place to start. So go to unitedsurvivors.org and look at e-learning and you'll find the course. Excellent. Okay, so the next question, is there a movie you love? So I was thinking about this question and a couple of things popped up for me. Um, so movies uh, are a big part of my self-care and it's pretty clear that I've got a constellation of movies that I love uh, that are all about um, uh storytelling through through music and so i'm i'm a big fan of the greatest showman and moulin rouge and across the universe and any kind of movie like that just captivates me and i'll watch it a million times titanic you name it i'm in um but i was also thinking that lately again we've got the coronavirus scare right now just like whipping everybody up into panic uh the two of the movies and my my son my oldest son he's 21 now but he's been absolutely obsessed with infectious disease and the black plague and all these things since he was a little kid he's my go-to expert on it 
Darkness. And so he's turned me on to a couple of movies. If you really want to get yourself scared, um, go watch Containment. It's a Netflix series that's just going to rock your world and get you all kinds of scared. Um, and then also Chernobyl. It's not infectious disease, but it's also about kind of contamination, human to human, and what that does to our psyche. Brilliant. Those are both on Netflix, aren't they? I believe. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Chernobyl's on HBO. Oh, it's HBO? Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. And then... Um... All right, that pretty much covers the, the documentary as well then. Uh, so what about... Oh, but I've got two more. They're, they're, those are more like docudramas. Uh, so a true documentary, um, again, from a, um, a mo- heart-moving self-care standpoint, there's a Netflix series on, called Dogs. Again, for those of us who, who really depend on our animals to help our mental health, that one will uh, make you uh, just so heartwarmed. And then Sherpa, I also found, was a great, great documentary about the human spirit. Sherpa, brilliant. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I have two because I cannot just simplify my life. So one is <laughs> uh, but the co-author on Guts, Grit, and the Grind. Her name is Sarah Gear. She wrote a book called The Price um, that is really a fictional account of what happens when uh, somebody in a first responder community dies by suicide. And it is so well written. It talks about all the complexities of suicide grief in a very, very intelligent, trauma-informed way. So I really recommend Sarah and her book, The Price. Um, And then we also have a number of leaders here in the Denver Fire Department that are doing incredible work. Um, Denver Fire Department was one of the larger municipal departments that really um, embraced suicide prevention and mental health promotion before, as you said, it became sexy uh, and have been rowing in that space for a long time. And so one of the champions that I like to lift up um, there is is the division chief, Manny Almaguer, because he is – he's – so articulate about this and also being a man of color um there's there's not many that speak out openly about mental health being a priority in the fire service so uh, i really recommend manny as another spokesperson for your podcast thank you what was manny's last name again al mcgarry al mcgarry okay and is he one of the ones on that video in the dialogue? Okay, perfect. He is. He's the one who says uh you know some i came to a place where i needed to reach out and part of it was things that were happening in my life. And part of it was the stresses of the department. And I saw it as, you know, as, uh, you know, mental training for my emotional well-being, just like I would do physical training for my physical well-being, something along those lines, he said, uh, in a very, in a very sharp, articulate way. Excellent. Yeah, I would love to reach out to him. And thank you. Um, All right. So then you mentioned self-care. What do you do to decompress apart from movies and dogs? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a good p- chunk of it. Um, I live in Colorado, so uh, it's really one of these unprecedented places to be surrounded by natural beauty. So as often as I can, we've got a little cabin up in Grand Lake area. I'm up there walking around uh, in the snow or boating, and I I really suck in um, nature and really have that refuel my soul. I'm also a very, very, very slow, long distance runner. I'm trying to run a marathon in all 50 states. And as I get older and slower, it's hard. Um, But my middle boy, uh, Tanner, has um, brought some fire back in my belly because he just started picking this up. And so we run races together. He finishes a solid two hours before me, which is just, you know, (sighs) but it's a fun thing that we do together. And we just got another race coming up in Virginia that I'll be 36 marathons in 33 states if I do indeed finish um, in like a week and a half. Ah! <laughs> Excellent. Have you done Florida yet? 
I did. I did Disney on its 20th anniversary, and it was totally fun. I wore my little Minnie Mouse skirt. And, you know, you get pictures with all the characters. Your time is terrible, but it's so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, the last department I worked for was their fire department, and it was funny because most people would run the marathon, but you would literally get some people, and I know this because we were in the emergency van at the back of the, the line that would literally run about 200 feet, take a selfie, and then jump in the van and go back and get their medal. <laughs> so no, not everyone that, that you doesn't see, count. No, but not everyone <laughs> you see that's, that's got a medal right in there has actually run the uh, <laughs> the marathon. <laughs> so, hmm. all right. Well, Sally, just well, one more time. What is your website so everyone can can go to that? Obviously, I'll put it yep. on the on the webpage as well. But it's just my name, Sally Spencer Thomas. Dot com sallyspencerthomas.com brilliant well i want to thank you so much it was an, an honor to to get to meet you in person last year and uh i've been looking forward to doing this and, and dana's been looking forward to hearing it as well um but i really appreciate you giving your perspective you've got a very unique you know parallel journey with your own personal trauma losing your brother and then you know your work with with our profession so thank you so much for being so generous yeah it's an honor to be here and thank you for doing what you do 